0: Medical students like nowadays may not like the step-by-step approach because they want to get into the exciting stuff. But to me, I felt it so fascinating that I got to learn about the basis of disease. I, I wasn't too eager to learn about how to treat them. I was just fascinated how diseases happen. The Born Global
1: Coffee Pod series is powered by ADVANCE, the professional network for overseas Australians fueling change at home and around the world when Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally. I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm gonna introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, Let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global with the courage to become the change the world needs. Today, we're gonna meet Dr. Rosa Chu, the winner of the Advanced Asia Impact Award for 2020. She is a prolific professor in the Department of Chemical Pathology. And the reason I say that is not only has she won numerous international awards, but get this, she holds over 485 patents. She's determined to tackle cancer and her and her colleagues have been developing blood tests with the goal to identify cancers early, thereby reducing cancer-related deaths. She's particularly passionate about better diagnostics, and her groundbreaking research has previously developed non-invasive tests to help identify fetal diseases by analyzing small amounts of baby's DNA in mother's blood samples. Since 2011, this has led to worldwide changes in prenatal testing practices, seeing Rosa named among the top 20 translational researchers of 2018 by the world-renowned scientific journal Nature Biotechnology. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's get into it. Here's Rosa. Dr. Rosa Chu, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to chat I'm starting this series uh, chatting to these incredible advancer winners uh, all in the same way because I'm I'm blown away by how many interesting pursuits, projects, you name it, that you've all got your fingers in. And so I want to know what's top of mind
0: for you right now. What is on top of my mind right now, uh, work-wise, in terms of the research, I've been involved in um, developing the groundwork related to uh, what we call a pain cancer test. So um, the pan-cancer test, as the name suggests, is a uh, an approach that is developed to try to uh, be able to detect the presence of early cancer, but um, not limited to a particular cancer per se. So um, uh, because uh, the approach um, that we have been um involved with has been commercialized. And it's as the clinical trials, uh, as I understood from the um, publicly available information, it's getting close to launch. So I'm quite excited and eager to learn about whether an approach like what I've described can make a difference.
1: So I'd love to know, where did it all start for you? How did you end up falling passionately in love with cancer research?
0: Well, um, so to, well, it dated back from medical school days in Australia. So, one a particular <laughs> class. What drew you in? It, it wasn't a particular class. It's, it's just that the way medicine was taught uh, when I was University of Queensland, it it was a step by step approach. That, um, I mean, medical students like nowadays may not like the step by step approach because they want to get into the exciting stuff. But to me, I felt it so fascinating that I got to learn about the basis of disease. I I wasn't too eager to learn about how to treat them, I was just fascinated how diseases happened. And then uh, in the most senior years, we learned about how to diagnose diseases. And then it was really in the later years that we learned about how to treat diseases. So I was already really excited when I was learning about how to detect diseases. And so, so and, and mind you, when I was, um, even before in medical school, I loved reading um, detective stories. And so <laughs> I just got hooked. So it was what we call pathology. And um, University of Queensland, we had a very strong um, pathology department and um, we had a really good um, pathology museum. And I I, I didn't mind sitting in the pathology museum. And so when I graduated, uh, when uh, I had to pick a medical specialty to uh, focus my training on, The first thing that came to my mind was detective medicine or laboratory medicine. And so in our jargon, we call it chemical pathology. I mean, um, there are different streams of pathology, but I particularly like molecular signatures in a person's body to try to detect diseases. And so I started my training as a chemical pathologist, and I thought I would just be doing regular chemical pathology work. But fortunately, um, not only that I got a job in my dream specialty, I happened to get a job in a teaching hospital um, in Hong Kong. I mean, we can talk about why I try, suddenly changed from being in medical school in Brisbane and then teleported into Hong Kong and started my work on day one. Um, um, and, why did you um, do
1: that? I feel like you, you've raised it. What, what was the, the catalyst for that move?
0: Well, it, it, it was actually quite a bit of a drama because um, I didn't even think of working anywhere else but Brisbane until one month before my graduation. So I already had my internship location all arranged, really excited to start my internship in Brisbane. Um, a particular hospital um, just outside of Brisbane. And it was because at that time, uh, there happened to be a, a change of legislation in Hong Kong and saying that there was an opportunity for overseas graduates um, who had a family um, a link um, to Hong Kong to practice medicine in Hong Kong if we took up the opportunity at that time. So it, the news just came And then I had to make a decision and act on it. And at that time, I thought, why not? I mean, I could speak the language. And I already knew about the healthcare system in Australia. I knew nothing about the healthcare system in Hong Kong. So I thought it'd be nice to diversify. And the key drive was, I spoke to some of the um, house officers, senior, more senior than I was um, when I was a medical student, and they were telling me about the tax rates in Australia, and they were complaining that for every one dollar of overtime that they worked, they only got half of it. So I thought maybe I should take advantage of the tax rate as well. I <laughs> and love so, that tax policy and, was part of the reason you ended up in Hong Kong. Yeah, well, I mean, I was young. I mean, I didn't need to yeah. think too much about anything else. I just needed a job. And so um, I submitted my application and then um, it was approved. And then, by mind you, I think my graduation date was on the 7th of December. But I was already working in Hong Kong on the 1st of January. And my application only went in in November. So, and, and the first day I was working, I knew nothing <laughs> about how the healthcare system worked. But of course... I mean, everybody make do and then coped. And then um, during that year, I also learned about the training opportunities that I found out that I could go directly into specialty training. So I got into chemical pathology and I was uh, lucky enough to be um, recruited by a teaching hospital. And so um, it was the first time that I learned that being such a junior staff, I had the opportunity to go into research. And at that time, there was an opportunity to research about non-invasive prenatal testing approaches, meaning using blood samples um, from pregnant women to try to detect the minuscule amount of DNA that the baby releases into the mother's circulation to try to work out if the baby had any chromosomal or genetic um, issues. And so um, I was involved in that research um, for about 10 years. Of course, I'm still um, involved in research in that area. But the signal of the unborn child in the circulation of the pregnant woman, the technical challenge is quite similar to trying to scan for glimpses of cancer signal that is abnormal DNA released by cancer in the circulation of a person. Because our motivation um, as a um, diagnostic medicine specialist is to solve diagnostic challenges that currently exist. Um, so um, my team and myself, of course, uh, we were very eager to transfer what we've learned in the prenatal field onto the cancer diagnostic field. And um, so, the unmet medical challenge that we uh, we believe humankind uh, was facing in terms of cancer diagnostics is that very often someone only learn to know that they are un, um, they they might have a problem is when they start to become unwell. And very often by that time the cancer is already too advanced because the growth is so large that it already causes consequences on the person's well-being. And so we thought, and and also everybody knows um, that um, the um, cancer is currently associated with a very high um, mortality rate and um, the what we call prognosis, the prospect of curing a cancer is not good. And so we thought, there must be a problem with the timing of the detection. So is there any way that we can advance the timeline of detecting cancer early uh, with the thesis, hoping that if we can detect the growth uh, at the very early stage, maybe even the existing treatments that are available could be even more, uh, could be more effective, let alone talking about all the new advances in treatment. But remember just now I just talked about, we had to rely on the patient to tell us that they are unwell, for example, having shortness of breath or coughing up blood, before we can do anything in the conventional sense. So in order to do anything earlier, it means that we have to scan apparently healthy individuals for the possibility of having cancer within them before they even knew it. But in order to scan amongst healthy individuals, it means that we cannot do anything that is dangerous. I mean, we definitely would not propose um, Um, doing invasive biopsies or doing an an endoscopy, chucking down a a big camera um, into the body. And so we thought um, one possible um, way is to do a blood test. And the blood test is what we've always been doing in the prenatal sense. That is, we know that when a cancer is growing in a person's body, some of the cells will die and then will release its DNA content into the circulation. And of course, the DNA content of a cancer cell, it is abnormal. And so we thought, can we detect a needle in a haystack that is amongst all the normal um, signature within the blood sample, detect that tiny glimpse of abnormal signature. And uh, so we developed different um, molecular techniques. So we've tried approaches for detecting um, biomarkers that are related to a specific cancer, um, and also we've tried approaches that um, biomarkers that are generically abnormal amongst many cancers, and both approaches worked. They actually produced um, uh, reasonably exciting results in uh, small-scale studies. We're not alone in the field more and more people, uh, it caught more and more people's attention. And so different groups around the world um, are researching on early cancer detection. Different groups have different um, exciting results. And so I think we are now, I mean, to fast track the story, we're now at a juncture that uh, some of these efforts are ready to be um, launched in the clinical setting, just like COVID-19 vaccines. And so so that's why this is, um, uh, this is, the, the topic that's on top of my mind. I, I'm not surprised um, now and in it's
1: 2021. An exciting body of work. And, and I wanted to ask you when one of the focuses that's very clear in your diagnostic work is the goal of creating cost effective and accessible tests for early cancer detection. How much of a barrier is that piece? How cost effective is it at the moment? How
0: accessible is it? How big a challenge are those two pieces of the puzzle? Well, um, if you're talking about your pure cost as a test, it is an expensive test. Uh, Because we have to use the most sophisticated machinery uh, protocols to detect that needle in the haystack. But I think formal cost analysis needs to take into account uh, the number of lives saved and also the years of um, cancer burden that uh, one can prevent um, patients from needing to go through. Because the tests haven't been completed yet, so such formal cost-benefit analysis cannot be done yet. But I am quite um, hopeful that in the long term, it will turn out to be um, cost-effective enough, taking account of the improvements in quality of life of patients that we can afford. Plus, whenever um, there is a new technology, we've witnessed it um, time and time again, that is, uh, with the economies of scale, the uh, massive introduction of the technology, uh, then uh, the, the cost per unit of test will reduce. And also, after we learn about what makes what components make a test effective, then we can process engineer it to reduce it into the minimal components to save costs. So I think as a researcher in diagnostic medicine, the first thing uh, we try to do is not worry about cost because... Clinical effectiveness is the key. We don't want to cut costs and cut corners and end up having a test that actually has causes problems, such as too many false positives, too many false negatives. So right now, we are focusing on clinical effectiveness, and then we'll address the cost subsequently. I
1: love that. And and can I ask, I feel like I can't have a pathologist on the podcast and not ask about Theranos and everything that happened there with Elizabeth Holmes and that Silicon Valley startup. I'm interested because you mentioned, you know, that this is an expensive area of research. This is, for those who are not familiar with the story, a very famous book now um, by the Wall Street journalist who broke the story called Bad Blood, which was all about this technology that purported to do all magnitude of things with one drop of blood but didn't live up to the hype. Has that been net good or bad for pathology. We've probably never had more people talking about blood and discussing and the possibility of investing in pioneering technology in this space. But then obviously we had you know, the, the reality not living up to the hype. I'd love your thoughts on what happened with Theranos. So actually,
0: if you go back to the history of um, um, the uh, discovery of the entire saga, uh, there was one public event that um, Elizabeth Holmes attended. Uh, That was actually one of the um, open sessions hosted by the American Association of Clinical um, Chemistry. And I am a member of AACC and I was at that lecture. I attended that session. Um, Members submitted questions. Um, She answered um, some of the questions. And on that uh, session, um, she explained that um, they were already working on a um, different technology. I mean, to me as well as some other members, we felt it was surprising in that uh, because there was so much hype in the original platform that they mentioned. And later on, I learned that the earlier platform, they already had been taking samples from patients at pham- certain pharmacies um, and tested in-house. It would be surprising to completely reinvent uh, reinvest in a different technology. Do you think it's been damaging for medical
1: technology, for example? You just saw that flood of money that had a multiple billion dollar valuation. Um, Does it suggest we need to be more uh, thorough in doing due diligence on medical companies? Do you think it was a one-off aberration? What's your take on kind of the the bigger
0: picture lessons, I guess, from the saga that was bad blood and Theranos? Personally, um, I didn't think that um, it, it was a damaging event. Actually, I think it is um, very educational uh, for everybody um, involved. For example, uh, number one, it really amazed um, those of us in the profession that um, some individuals can get into the business of a highly specialised area without the necessary qualifications and uh, even more amazing that how could investors not familiar with the field and still proceeded to invest in the company, not knowing that uh, the individuals in the company may not have the necessary qualifications. So I don't think the story, uh, the, the motto of the story is anything new, to be honest, Actually, it just reminds everybody that don't enter a field or, or don't invest into something that you haven't done research about.
1: It's like pathologists aren't that interested in it. That's that's, uh, that's hilarious. Hey, I've read somewhere where you've said that raising your children, you've got twin girls, I believe, is your biggest research project.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why is that the case? Well, the reason is because... Um, I mean, I went to medical school and then um, learned to become a chemical pathologist. And uh, we first learned about the tested and tried approaches. But as a parent, there's no coaching. You deal with each saga or each um, um, situation uh, as it comes along. And you only learn about whether you've done well or not after you've actually acted on it. So it's... it's, it's um, but in order to become a better parent... Um, I use more a little bit of my research sense. That is, I would logically think about what are the options I have at that time, pick an option, execute the experiment, and then observe, and then collect nooks. And then if it re- happens again, if the first time the outcome wasn't um, a desired one, as I thought, then I would tweak the protocol And then see if the outcome would improve. I love it. And I I think this approach was
1: your control, and one of them was the experimental variable, or how you were working your uh, your lab.
0: (laughs) Well, I couldn't do that because although they are twins, they are non-identical twins, so they are quite different um, individuals. And um, I learned that um, I should not treat them as the same. So there, there there, are no control variables in this scenario. Um, but in the process, I, I learned to be a better person myself because I need to be more tolerant. I have to take into account of what a child knows or to have reasonable expectations of what a child should know at a particular age. So it actually helps me become a better teacher, a better researcher as well, the process. So I think... Being a parent and also working at the same time, the knowledge and the experience I gained from both sides actually fertilize, cross-fertilize um, the, each side. And, and and I hope in the end it's a better outcome for both being a parent as well as being a researcher.
1: I love that. I've read that your motto is never say no to an opportunity. Why
0: has that been your driving mantra? It's partly related to um, how I ended up um, working in Hong Kong, as, as I've uh, mentioned. I think as a young person, I was lucky enough to have many opportunities throughout me. And many of the opportunities came all at the same time. And uh, so time-wise, it was actually quite difficult to cope. Um, I had the option to pick and choose, of course, the opportunities, even at that time, I strongly believe that the reason why I had those opportunities were because um, I, had, or I was fortunate enough to have mentors who believed in me and looked after me. So even at that time, I felt that it, it, it was just morally um, not right to say no to someone, um, the many individuals who provided opportunities to me for all good intentions. And so um, I actually took up all of those opportunities in those years. And um, I just had to cope with it um, in terms of um, better time management. And uh, eventually, um, the outcome, I thoroughly benefited from the outcome of taking up those opportunities. So I just, I could, I could name a, f- a few. For example, um, when uh, I was first hired by um, the Chinese University of When I was first hired um, at the Prince of Wales Hospital uh, in Hong Kong to do my uh, chemical pathology training, because it was a teaching hospital, within months of starting my training, I was already asked to also consider doing a PhD. At that time, I thought, how could I cope with um, both uh, medical specialty training as well as doing PhD at the same time? But at the same time, I thought that was very unusual because usually people have to research and then try to find supervisors for their PhD training but somehow I was invited to start a PhD and so I thought well then then later on it it was because it was a golden opportunity the reason because as I said uh, when I first started research it was about trying to develop develop non-invasive prenatal testing approaches and the reason was because um, at that time it was a new discovery that um, baby's DNA was found floating in the maternal circulation. So that was one um, opportunity that I took up that turned out to be, it has completely changed my career. Uh, another opportunity that turned up at that time was um, because being part of a teaching hospital, I researched conferences um, right from the very early days. And one of the early conferences that I attended was um, delivered, I mean, it was a conference in, in Hong Kong. And one of the talks, were delivered by um, a senior member from the American Association of Clinical Chemistry. And so I got affiliated with this very important international um, professional association of my field, basically at the time when I entered my profession. And it was through that chance encounter that I got the opportunity to work very closely with the profession. And I got to know and learn uh, from the very senior members another corner of the world even as a junior trainee so all those opportunities combined together it really completely transformed my career and if I had said no to any one of those um, uh, opportunities I I, I think I uh, probably it would have taken me at least double the time to achieve the research that I have managed to achieve so far
1: So based on your experience, uh, um, one of the things we're really mindful of with this podcast is encouraging people to move from ideas to action, of which your career is a great example. I'd love to ask you, what is one action you would like to encourage people who've listened to our conversation today? We've touched on such a wide array of topics. What would you encourage them to go and do today in order to be a better leader or to be more impactful in the mission that they're chasing after?
0: I would say um, to be honest about one's limitations. I believe um, that would actually make one to be more appreciative of um, other team member streams as well as more tolerant and ac- accepting of the limitations of I mean other team especially members. in medical research. It's very unusual that a highly successful research project is completed by a one man band. I mean maybe in the old days, this was possible, but nowadays it is uh, becoming more and more rare that this could happen. So, I mean, just in healthcare alone, as well as in medical research, everything is team-based. And the success of a team is very dependent on the strengths of um, the team members. But none of us are perfect. And none of us are identical, just like even my twins, they're not identical. It's human to have limitations and it's i believe it is the leaders and also the management faults. if uh, within a team uh, we are getting results that are less than ideal and ending up pushing colleagues or team members to take on tasks that are not their strengths and i think being a good team uh, is really important to i mean the key to success is to empower people to do what they do best And very often, team members don't even know. I mean, all of us have been young once. Uh, Not until we have tried different things, uh, then we start to learn what are our own strengths. So um, we need to help staff members to learn about what are their strengths and value their strengths. And in the process, also learn about one's own strengths and limitations. So I always believe that success delivered by a team would reach higher heights than success delivered by a few long individuals i think the philosophy is very similar to how i raise my kids that is i said i in the process i learned to be a better parent and learn to be a better person myself but of course i then learn about learn learn a lot about my own limitations
1: i think that's a great note to finish on uh, not only to know your limitations but empower others to do what they do best Rosa Chu, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and to hear more about your research. I wish you every success with The Next Frontier. I can't wait to watch and follow your journey uh, pushing the boundaries of diagnostic medicine. And thank you so much for your time and for sharing so generously today. Thank you, Holly. It has
0: been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.